0: Hey everybody, welcome to Airy Live. I'm Mark Tier, the founder of Black Spectacles, and today we're going to review a few different mock exam questions so you can learn how these types of questions are written uh, for, this, uh, for the structural sections of the exams and get a better sense of the structural considerations uh, you're expected to know. Uh, when you're done with this episode, you're going to have uh, a variety of useful test-taking strategies. Uh, that'll help you feel comfortable demonstrating what you need to know about structures uh, when you encounter those questions, you know, across the different exams. Before we get started, though, uh, if you'd like to attend our next ARE live broadcast, we're going to sit down with one of our Black Spectacles ARE prep coaches and a psychology expert to discuss test anxiety, Uh, what it is, how to manage it, how you can improve your exam scores in specific ways to help overcome it. We've actually been doing a lot of sort of thinking about it uh, around here, And um, people get freaked out when they take these exams Um, and believe it or not like you know most people whether they realize it or not have um, you know uh, sort of our own ways for dealing with it and uh, we're actually going to talk to an expert uh, someone who's you know certainly gone through the exams as well as someone who actually is a psychology expert to help you figure out how to some great tactics for uh, for bringing uh, your let's say your test anxiety down and knowing you're going to whoop some ass going into these tests. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, so that's going to be the next session. Just like this one, we're going to ask you know, uh, ask for your input on, um, on you know, during the session for any questions uh, that you may have uh, during the session. A little update on our products. You guys probably know that uh, uh, in addition to video lectures, we have online practice exams and flashcards, as well as a group coaching program. Um, we just closed our September group coaching cohort uh, it's going to start in a couple of weeks. Uh, our biggest cohort yet, um, it's really exciting. Um, it's actually about two, almost three times the size of our, uh, our other cohort. So it really sort of um, proving to be a really powerful way to help you get through the exams is having a virtual uh, group and having the structure and support that that provides. Something we just launched, which is really new, um, is we relaunched we, we private tutoring hours uh, with licensed architects. So if you're looking, you know, sometimes you're sort of stuck and you're looking for some one-on-one time, uh, with an expert who's a licensed architect who's gotten through the exams. Um, you can check out our website for information about about tutoring. And then lastly, some other news. Um, we're excited to announce that we are the first ever NCARB-approved test prep provider, which I know I've said that a couple of times, but we recently got our fourth exam approved. Um, so that makes uh, practice exam, programming analysis, PDD, and PPD, all four of those and all the study materials. That includes the videos and the practice exams, the flashcards, and all that stuff have been approved by NCARB under their new program. Um, and certainly stay tuned for the announcement for the last two exams, where divisions will be approved. Um, as I always say, if you'd like to have your boss pay for your exam, uh, your Black Spectacles membership, uh, be sure to tell them about our firm licenses for firms of every size. Uh, and you can go to blackspectacles.com firms to uh, inquire about those. Um, and then lastly, today uh, we have a special discount on Black Spectacles individual memberships to share, which I'll, I'll do at the end of the show. We have two awesome guests today. Um, Mike Newman, uh, who you may have heard of. Um, He's a senior lecturer at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, he's also the founder of Shed Studio, and he's the instructor for Black Spectacles online area exam prep curriculum, uh, which if you haven't already checked it out, uh, you can head over to blackspectacles.com to watch any of the free tutorials from the courses. Um, And we also have another special guest, uh, Ji Young Moon uh, is with us today. Um, right. She has more than uh, 17 years of experience in structural design, so uh, she's serious business over here. Right. Um, <laughs> and she's worked uh, uh, in new buildings, renovations of existing structures. She's designed a variety of building uh, types, including healthcare, residential, cultural, educational facilities. Um, she also has a noteworthy experience of working in both an engineering and an architectural office. Uh, she's currently at Cordigan Clark & Associates, which means that she, she knows who she's dealing with yeah. she's talking to architects. Um, she also enjoys uh, passing uh, on her expertise and knowledge through teaching, which she's done for over 10 years at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago here. Um, Jung's also given guest lectures and presentations to architecture and engineering students at Northwestern University and the University of Illinois Chicago. Today's going to be a really interesting format. Um, so, with that, um, I'll hand it over to you, Mr. Newman.
1: All right, All right. Uh, great. Thanks, Mark. Uh, G, great to have you here. Thank you. Um, this great should you be uh, pretty fun. Uh, and as Mark said, uh, uh, G has been straddling the architecture <laughs> structural world for quite a while. Um, I'm always suspect when structural engineers want to tell architects uh, how to do structures because they tend to talk different languages. But because G has been in both worlds, she uh, <laughs> she has the ability to to sort of uh, kind of make both things uh, work and uh, understandable. Uh, so, what we're going to do is we're just going to take a couple of questions and I'm going to read out the questions and then uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, we'll have a little chat about kind of what are the issues surrounding those questions and uh, when you read the question, how do you parse it to really understand what you're really talking about? Like, what, what are we looking for? and then what are the issues we need to think about, and then how we actually answer the question. Um, So we're gonna just jump right in, if that's okay with you.
2: Yeah, sounds good.
1: All right, Uh, so here we go. All right, so our first question, uh, like I said, we're only gonna do a few of these, um, but we're gonna start off with this one, which is a three-story building with no basement, slab on grade, has a column spacing of 30 by 30, and an assumed live load of 80 PSF, pounds per square foot, for the floor, and 30 PSF for the roof. If the dead load for both floor and roof is 20 PSF and if the square footing below one of the interior columns is 5 foot 9 in length and also in width, what should the allowable soil bearing pressure be? So okay, what is, what's going on here? What's the, what's the gist of the question about?
2: So if we were to start from the beginning, I think one of the big thing the parentheses slab on grade, just indicates that, you know, people are like, well, why is it on there? The, re- the main reason is slab on grade means that the load is gonna be on the ground, so on, directly onto the earth. And so because of that, it won't impart any load onto a column, so we don't have to worry about that ground floor. So I think that's the first thing you can think about. So we only have to worry about the elevated floors.
1: So what you're saying here is, if this is our uh, my poorly drawn building here, um, if we have three stories, if somebody's standing here on that first floor, the load that they represent is going straight to the ground. Right. So it's not being held up by any beams and columns, uh, anything like that. That's right. However, if I'm standing on this floor here, that, is, that load is actually following the beam and then eventually to the column and then and to our, footing. To our yep. footing down there. So the first thing you've noticed here is because of slab on grade, we're really talking about the second floor and the third floor in terms of adding up the loads, right?
2: And the roof. Don't forget the and roof, the roof. Mike. Yes, and the roof. Already <laughs> off to a good start. Yeah. Uh,
1: so okay. So that's the first sort of key thing that you noticed. What else do you notice?
2: Well, the in terms of dimensions, it gives us a thirty-foot by thirty-foot uh, base spacing, and it doesn't give us any other information. Um, you know, as you read through, it says the interior column. So really, in terms of uh, figuring out the load, we need to look at tributary area times the actual load in terms of pounds per square foot. I look at it in terms of hierarchy. Sometimes like just looking at some of these units isn't enough of a clue. And I think in this case, having pounds per square foot, we have to multiply by some sort of square foot number in order to get our load. And so here, the only dimension that's given really for in terms of the, layout, the plan layout is 30 foot by 30 foot, and so we know that we are looking at a tributary area of 30 times 30, and hence 900 square feet.
1: So Next I'm one. sketching out a framing plan here with a little tributary area. So this is that tributary area for that column, um, and it's halfway and halfway to all the other uh, uh, elements of structure. Now. This could actually be quite a lot more complicated depending on the exact way that the joists or beams or whatever are done. But the sort of typical assumption without any more information would be that you would take this as half the distance from there to there. And then same thing going the other direction.
2: So typically as architects um, looking at some of these designs, you're just trying to get the preliminary size, a reasonable size to start out with. Maybe you'll have an engineer on board later on to help you guys really narrow down the design. But it's good as architects to start with reasonable sizes and show them on your drawing so that your engineers know that you, you know you, you know what you're doing. <laughs> so you don't laugh at us mostly? Yes. <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, nice not to be laughed at. Uh, so our tributary area is then equal to 900 square feet. Uh, and as you pointed out, we have it uh, on the second floor and on the third floor and on the roof. Yes. So it's all of those 900 square foot areas.
2: Right and so next we figured out how much our tributary area is. So tributary area refers to how much load that that column is carrying and then the second part is let's figure out how much load we have on each of these floors. So let's start with the roof. So on the roof Um, It says that we have a dead load of 20 pounds per square foot plus a live load of 80 pounds per square foot. Oh, no, 30 pounds per square foot. Sorry about that. For a total load on the roof of 50 pounds per square foot. And then on the second and the third floor, they have the same loading. Um, And so we have a dead load of 20 pounds per square foot And then we have a live load of 80 pounds per square foot. So we have 100 pounds per square foot for each floor. So what you can do is you can take the tributary and multiply by the load at each floor. Or you can, um, because all of this is getting added up into each of the columns and eventually making its way down to the foundations. You can add up all the loads together for a total of 250 pounds per square foot and then just multiply it by then 900 square foot.
1: So that's one way to do As yes. we say, all right, this is the total uh, of the uh, pounds. If we think of them all together, these all like one, two, and three all added together. So that would then be 250 times 900, which uh, let's see, what would that be?
2: Um, that would be 225,000 pounds. So obviously, when you're out in the working force and stuff, you'll have nice little column load take-down charts and such. But you know, you're in the exam. You have like one minute, one minute thirty seconds to get this through. So let's you know think about it globally. Don't get so bogged down with the numbers, and uh, look at it as you know how can I get through this within the next minute. Um, and so the next portion is is now what we have to do is take we took our pounds per square foot loading now converted it into the actual point load that's going into the column, and hence the foundations. Now we have to look at it in terms of that load, once it gets down to the foundations, gets spread out onto the footing as well. So we're spreading that load onto the footing, which eventually goes into the dirt, so we're we're trying to spread it out as much as possible. And so in this uh, problem, it tells us that the the footing below is 5 foot 9 inches in each direction, a square footing. And so the area of the footing, I don't have this off the top of my head, it's 33 square feet.
1: Okay, so you're looking to find the area of the footing. So the, the you know, the, the, if you imagine the footing is uh, square with the column coming down in the middle, right? So uh, we're looking for the, the actual area of the footing on the underside there, so how much soil is pushing back as the load is pushing down through that concrete. Right. Uh, So we have 33 square feet, and what does that tell us?
2: That tells us that the load, the 225,000 pounds, is getting kind of smeared and spread out within that 33 foot squared.
1: So is shmeared, is that a highly technical structure term? Yeah, s- oh, yeah. Very, very technical. Okay. <laughs> so uh, effectively we're just going to take uh, this 225 and divide it by 33 right. in order to find out per each individual square foot how much of that load would we have to be putting on.
2: And that turns out so, to be about 68, 6,805 pounds per square foot.
1: 6,805
2: pounds per square foot.
1: Uh, yeah. Yep. Okay. So we now know that we have six, oh, well over six thousand pounds per square foot of total load coming down through this column. After you add up all the tributary areas, uh, it's coming down to the footing, uh, and then the footing is spreading out, and it's spreading. It's big enough that we've made it big enough so that we're getting this amount of total load per square foot of load onto each square foot of the soil.
2: Yes. So, so
1: therefore, what does that tell us?
2: Well, it tells us that now we have to find an allowable bearing pressure. So the soil has to be able to hold up 6,805 pounds per square foot. Um, and so we have to show that the soil has a capacity that's larger than the 6,800. And so the closest one is would be 7,000 pounds per square foot.
1: And the six thousand would not be right because it's too right. low. It's close, but it's too low. Definitely not three thousand. And nine thousand would be very safe. Yes. Uh, but what we need to have is the uh, seven thousand.
2: Yep. And so, where do you get these numbers? You have a geotechnical engineer who provides these numbers for us, the engineers and the architects, so that we can design these buildings. And so, you know, you can go back to your geotechnical engineer and say, hey, can we get 7,000 on our site? And they'll provide you a report, and you'll be able to pick it off of, off of that report.
1: Yeah, and so it just means that you you know to look for yes. the 7,000. And if, let's say, it came back and it didn't quite make it, then you'd probably start looking in, well, maybe our 5.9 by 5.9 is, isn't big enough. We need mm-hmm. more soil uh, if because the PSF was too low and we couldn't get the soil to make the numbers work, right? This would be that kind of thing that you would do early on right. and then you're essentially testing to see if our, if we made the best guess.
2: Yep. And then if, say example, um, the capacity is only 2,000 in the soil, what would you do? We would look into a different kind of foundation systems perhaps, maybe um, change how that load is distributed within the building, but generally we would go to a higher capacity foundation system.
1: So you're not going to just go and like cheat the soil report and <laughs> no. scratch it out and use no. whiteout or something like okay. No. So I mean. don't do that. All right. uh, okay, that's great. Uh, I think that's pretty straightforward. And obviously, there's a couple different ways we could have added these numbers together. We could have y- the way you just did it was you made the 250 psf total and then multiplied that 900. We could have done those individually by floor and then added them up separately. It's all the same numbers. It is all the right? same
2: numbers, but I'm an engineer. I like Keep to be it simple. Efficient. Yep. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right, let's try the next one. All right, this one's a little different. Uh, Number two here is an architect is designing a new hotel that will be 200 feet tall and has a building footprint in the shape of a T. It will be located in an area that is prone to earthquakes. Which of the following design strategies would be the most appropriate? So this one is one, before we start even really trying to answer, we have a couple of things like the T, we know there's some worries there, that's gonna come up. But we really have to take a quick look at the answers to really understand what the question is really getting at. Because this one is, all the the excitement is actually in the answers. So let's take a quick look at the answers and then we'll come back and and think about it. So A, possible, is provide a double height ground floor entrance, interesting. B, use exterior shear walls, all right. C, provide balconies. D. Isolate the two portions of the T footprint from each other. Alright, so looking at this, what are the key parts that jump out at you?
2: The key parts is, you know, they give you, a lot of times these uh, questions, they give you more information than you really need. It, you know, whether it's 200 feet or 22 feet, the answer is the same. So don't get bogged down in some of the extra, you know, extra information that's provided. The other thing is, in the shape of a T, why is that important? And so, you know, some of these questions that you'll get in, you're not gonna be doing um, seismic design on the exam, but these conceptual things will definitely be on the the exam. And with the T, it's trying to tell you that we have irregularities. So in an ideal world, in earthquake, we'd have a perfectly square building that with, you know, no transfers, all the columns are exactly the same. Or
1: a nice circle. Or a nice
2: circle, that works out too. But that's not the, unfortunately, that's not the structural world that we live in. And
1: why why a square? Like, what's the advantage?
2: The advantage of a square is that, A, you don't have re corners, which this T-shape does.
1: So that's these little inside yep. corners here, right yep. there, and there.
2: Right. Um, and then, it's, you don't have to worry about things like, generally, like torsion, um, other irregularities that we would have to design for, and we're not saying that you can't do this. It's just we have there. We take design penalties um, as engineers to be able to design for this.
1: So l- what's a layman's version of torsion? It's like kind of twisting. Twisting. Yep. So the if if the Earth is shaking around, right, and it's shaking that way and that way and a little bit this way and this way, uh, the worry here is these big corners start shimmering and shaking around, and you start getting these guys doing a little limbo dance kind of thing going on and it's, you're putting a huge amount of pressure on those corners right that that it as the building is because it's weighted differently on the different parts of the t there's more of a pull more of a twist as it goes along and so you end up with these uh, kind of hard to judge forces in these sort of un, unusual spots and these especially in those interior spots there's a number of places where it could become a problem if the t was really long Yep. Then you know if you had the building going way out over here, then this would be just a much bigger lever arm, if you will, it and so it'd be more twisty out there. Yep. So there's a lot of different potential problems, but the obvious one that we see when we see the T shape is that uh, reentrant corner. Right. I, did I say that right? Yes, reentrant it corner. Okay, <laughs> I always get that wrong. Uh, so the f- so the first thing you noticed was the T. And you're starting to figure out all right what what of that is is going to be the the big issue
2: so you know trying to so i think if you see these re-entering corners you're trying to make these shapes basically into most regular that you can and by looking through these answers you know it'll give you a clue as to which one would be the best so like the first one for example is a double height ground floor entrance those are things we try to avoid as engineers. It gives you a soft story. We call it.
1: Oh uh, but we love them as architects. <laughs> yes, you do. Right. Every lobby <laughs> yeah. in the city yes. wants to have that double height uh, which, first floor, which
2: you can in Chicago. You know, but if you're because there's not this, a lot of uh, earthquakes. Right. So if you're building this in you know Los Angeles, for example, then um, you can't have you. We have to take penalties for this grand entrance to the buildings.
1: And because the issue is that double height thing, it means you're putting a huge amount of pressure onto those columns. Right. And as this big weight of the upper building in the upper floors, if it's only, uh, I don't know, 13 foot floor to floor or something like that, those columns aren't, don't have a huge amount of uh, kind of twisting going on. Right. But you got one that's 25 feet long or 30 feet long for one of those columns, and then you have this huge weight of the building on top of it, and it's shaking around. Uh, that's just a, you know, it's called a soft floor because you're worried it's just going to collapse.
0: Right, right. Do you use the phrase design penalty a couple times. Yes. What does that mean? Oh, so it
2: means instead of designing that column for the load that it sees, we would have to, in order to be able to accommodate and not collapse, we would have to design for something two to three times what that load is. And so So like
1: the, the low that we just calculated, for example, going down uh, like you would just ignore that almost for those things because there's going to be this other issue which is going to make those particular columns much, much more robust.
2: Right. And so that's why, you know, when I have friends from California visiting us here in uh, Chicago, even if they're looking at a building that I designed that was 50 stories tall, they're like, oh, your columns are so cute. <laughs> because we don't have to take those kind of seismic penalties here. Okay,
1: thank you. Mm-hmm. So okay, we've uh, we gotten rid of A because that's uh, creating a soft story, which is a bad idea. Uh, what about uh, B?
2: Well, use exterior shear walls. I am all on board for using exterior shear walls and having um, all my resistance out in the out in the uh, exterior. But I have a feeling that as architects, you guys might have something to say about that.
1: What with the fact that it's hard to put windows in it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so there's issues, the shear walls, that's a possible answer? It's a
2: possible answer, but... So maybe we'll know.
1: skip by that one for yep. the moment.
2: Yep.
1: All right, provide balconies.
2: Provide balconies. It's not doing anything. Um, it's not helping. It's not... You know, that's like a null answer. It's not helping us, it's not hurting us. I mean, it's
1: great if you're trying to barbecue some ribs or sure. something, but not really helping us in any other real way. Right. So we're going to get rid of that. All right, how about D?
2: D is isolate two portions, and that is, that is the answer. And so what you'll end up having um, structurally is two separate buildings. When we design, we'll look at um, each part of the T as two separate buildings. And what, why that's important for you guys architecturally is that you will have to make accommodations in the floors and in your exterior facade to, uh, to sort of hide that part.
1: So it, we're literally building two separate buildings right. and then kind of doing a little, a little jig here to kind of give them something that can accept movement right. in between.
2: So we'll, you know, you'll, as structural engineers, we'll provide you with how far that distance needs to be. And then it's up to you to create these beautiful joints (laughs) (laughs) so that you can't see those uh, gaps between the two buildings.
1: And what would be a typical number?
2: For a 200-story building?
1: I mean just rough justice. Are we talking five feet? Are we talking five inches?
2: Yeah we're talking inches probably. Um, Ten maybe inches sometimes. Um, on a taller building, but we have to take into account accommod- uh, accommodate both the movement in the top of the T and the sort of the stem of the T, and be able to provide enough space so that they don't knock into each other.
1: And they're both moving. Yes. Which is one of those things you forget. You you do you look at it in one way and you think, all oh, right, I've got it all calculated. Yep. But then you're like, oh wait, the other one's moving the as well. The other one's moving too. Yeah.
0: So if you've ever been in a building, right, and you you've walked over one of those metal plates on the floor, you perhaps are standing over a movement joint. Um, And there's a a cover over that. And if you look, you'll see that it's on the floor. And then if you look at the wall, usually it runs up the wall. If you look at the ceiling, usually it runs up the ceiling. Once you sort of realize that this is a a thing that sometimes happens, that you have one building, but it's kind of broken into two pieces, you'll see those movement joints um, that are hidden. Um, And as as you were saying, usually sometimes they're a half an inch, sometimes they're a couple inches.
1: Um, just and, on and they might be hidden very well. You might right. have clever little overlapping just, walls or something like right. that um, uh, so it's harder to tell mm-hmm. or they might be hidden more cheaply and you yeah. go around to Home Depot and get a little cover plate and <laughs> kind of screw it on yeah
2: You can see it the easiest in airports because airports yep. are so, are so long. big yep. yeah and it, you'll see uh, going from terminal to terminal that there's a lot of those floor covers and
0: wall coverings and such. So what we're recommending is that the next time you see one, Rip it off. All <laughs> right, take I a look. Decide, yeah. measure you, it. Yeah, you know. know, there's probably a moving joint in there. Yeah,
1: yeah. tell them uh, Mark Tier sent you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, don't call us. <laughs> All right, let's take a look at the next one. All right, so this is kind of in the same vein here. Um, a three-story steel frame building is being renovated and is having an additional story added to the top. What is the best placement for the additional story's steel moment frame? So there's a couple of interesting things stated there. This is another one of those ones where we probably have to look at the answers before we get too deep into it, but right off the bat, the steel moment frame is telling me something there, right? So let's look at the answers, all right? A, along the perimeter, so that's where the moment, they're saying to put the moment frames, or B, uh, around the elevator shafts, C, over the existing moment frames, or D, at the corners. All right, so when you look at this, what do you notice?
2: Well, I, lo- I look at it and I see, hey, you know, if we were designing a brand new building just, off, um, just from scratch, there are a lot of all those answers would work, you know, along the perimeter, the elevator shafts, the corners. They could all potentially work. But what the biggest thing is we are adding on to an existing structure. And when you do that, the best place, and your engineer will love you if you do this, is to try to keep the lateral resisting frames Um, in the same line as what's existing in the building already.
1: So right off the bat, what we're really saying is there's an existing building. It doesn't make sense to try to do a different structural concept on the addition. You want to keep the concept of the structure uh, consistent all the way through the building. Right. So uh, you would just do it right above uh, the current moment frame. Yes, as much so, as we can. now that we've been talking about moment frames for a second here, and assuming everybody knows what they are, why don't you take a quick second and tell us what a moment frame is in this context?
2: Okay, um, well, we have lots of different uh, ways that we resist lateral forces, whether they be wind or earthquake. And one of the favorite of architects is the moment frame, typically built in steel. And the beams are connected directly to the columns. And so it's a very clean connection. There's no Xs, there's no cr- any kind of cross bracing to interfere with your uh, space planning. And so it becomes a very popular uh, popular lateral resisting system. The, the thing is, it's not the most efficient system. It's not the cheapest. It's not, in terms of structural behavior, it's also, it doesn't uh, resist as well, as say, for example, providing like an X bracing. So x bracing is
1: literally when you have on the, in section uh, like an actual X. Yes. Right?
2: Yeah. And so, you know, it's great if you can figure out your programming so you can hide it in a wall or around the elevator shaft and such, but, you know, a lot of times these buildings, they don't stay exactly where they are and they change over time and you don't want uh, future owners to open up a wall and say, oh, no.
1: Right. Uh, if, if I'm trying to put a door right here, yes. that's going to be a nightmare right. uh, for somebody down the road. So in this, like, uh, in, instead of it just being like a couple of bolts holding this uh, beam to this column, uh, which would be more of a pin connection, right. you're talking about either it's a whole lot of bolts, yep. or it's actually all welded together.
2: All really. welded together. Um, so when
1: you see moment frame, it's not exactly that it means welded, but it means that it's something like like it's pretty seriously connected.
2: It is. what it, you know, one of the biggest clues you'll see is that the top flange of the beam, so the top part of the beam, and the bottom flange of the beam, there's a more robust connection between them. Um, so that, yep, so that the connection it doesn't it prevents rotation is what we call it. So instead of a pin connection, we call it a fixed connection.
1: So if you imagine if this was just like some bolts there and this is, there's that uh, wide flange over there and they're not connected at that top flange and the bottom flange, that's a pin connection. Right. But this would be a moment connection. Right.
2: And so, you know, one of the big differences that moment uh, connection is actually very expensive. A lot of times we have to have iron workers on site because uh, they're welding everything. They're welding, and, yeah. field welding everything. And so it's fine if you're, you know, 10 feet above ground, but a lot of times they're welding these things 200 feet ab- above the ground.
1: And, and so there's a lot of safety issues. Yes. As well, uh, it, the extra cost of all the safety gear and all that stuff that has to be put in, too. plus the welders what? are making a yeah. pretty big bank Yeah, they are. Uh, and they're standing around on site waiting for that steel beam to get put into place where they can then weld it, so yep. you're paying them for while they're waiting around and it's a very expensive way to go. The pin joints, much, much faster of assembly, much cheaper, but they're a pin joint, they're a pin. so they're not gonna get you. You're gonna have to do something like right. the X-brace or some sort of shear wall system that's gonna help with that lateral force.
2: Right, and then I think I saw a uh, problem recent uh, uh, test problem recently about it as well. These welds, they're also very prone to, you have to think about the weather conditions. If uh-huh. it's too cold to weld, there'll be someone sitting there with a industrial heater heating up the steel so that it's not too cold um, to weld. Because otherwise, you introduce cracks and such. There
1: you are welding in uh, <laughs> the you know, 40th floor in uh, Minnesota. Yes. And that's, you're heating all of Minnesota in order to keep that, <laughs> yeah. uh, that thing just warm. To, yeah. Just
2: to weld that one joint. Yeah. yeah.
1: All right. Well, that's a great... I, I think the, the idea here of really noticing that, all right, it's a renovation and then an addition and sort of how that follows one after the other. Like, you've got to keep inconsistent consistent with that is really a key takeaway, and then everything else is just sort of working it out. Right. All right. Let's try number four here. So uh, number four, a 14-inch deep beam has a 70-kip-inch moment force transferring between a moment connection to a steel column. What is the axial force on the plate connection of the beam's top flange to the column's web?
2: So this is hey, this is a good segue because we're talking about a moment connection basically between a beam and a column. So I think if you put it put up the same drawing you had, Mike, from the previous problem. So one of the questions um, I sometimes get is, so it's great that I have a fixed connection, a moment connection, but where does all that force go? And so this is sort oh, of wait, I'm trying going to, to the web though, yep. right?
1: So here's there's my. Sorry, I'm very badly drawing that.
2: (laughs) So, you know, how does it go? So, right now, when we look at the beam, that 70-kip-inch moment, you want to draw like a little moment. um, Basically, it's going in as a rotation in the beam, so sort of into the top and bottom flange. So So the top flange is kind of pushing, and the bottom flange is pulling. And that's what creates that 70-kip-inch moment. So what we want to do is we want to try to figure out how much of that, how it, is it going into that column. And it gives us a clue that the uh, beam is 14 inches deep. And so what's resisting it is that 14, the lever arm um, is 14 inches. So a moment is basically a force times a distance. And right now, you know, it's always force times a distance. So right now it's giving us a moment, it's giving us a distance, so we can figure out what kind of force is going on to that column. So, you know, this you'll see this application in many places. And sometimes I know um, it's hard to get, it's easy to get bogged down into all these formulas and such, but this is a pretty basic one that you'll see um, over and over again in many different applications. So if you l- want to figure out what the force is, you would take the moment and divide it by the distance. So here our moment that was given is 70 kip inches and the distance, sort of the lever arm, it has to resolve it is 14 inches. And so you'll see that the overall force is 5 kips. So that's a, we call it a tension and compression couple. So the force that's being pushed on the top flange is 5 kips and on the bottom is also five kips. And, yep.
1: And so when you did that, uh, essentially we just got rid of the inches on both of these. We did. And then we just divided that out and we got five because 14 goes into 75 and we have the kips left, so it's five kips.
2: Yep, and so you'll see that with like moment, for example like moment frames and such, you'll see a lot of times the beams are deeper and part of that reason is having that deeper beam Spreads out the load more, and so you'll get, excuse me, smaller uh, forces onto the columns. Uh,
1: because, like, if that if the the d gets larger, then the m over d goes
2: smaller. Gets much smaller.
1: Right? Um, you know, if the denominator is getting bigger, then the overall fraction is getting smaller. Uh, so, if uh, you might in a situation uh, where it's fourteen in certain spots, it might be more like. 18. 18 or something like that and even that small, I mean, four inches is a lot but yep. even that small difference would start to make a pretty big impact on how, what the force load was going into that, uh, into that web.
2: Right. And so, you know, not to get into too much nitty gritty but, you know, those connection details, um, you know, it, the things that we, have, we can do to try to reduce the cost of the job are these kind of uh, little details. Not having to reinforce like the column outside of what the actual column size is and such really brings a lot of savings to the project. And so trying to keep some of these connections and such simple so that we can actually get these buildings built under, you know, within budget.
1: So okay, if you were, if you came across this question and you were like, okay, I think I get the idea is like, okay, it's a moment connection. Uh, moment means force times distance, so it's going to be the depth, and because that's where, the only distance I could yep. have, uh, and we know the overall moment, so like we can, we're we're obviously sort of figuring out, kind of backtracking to figure out uh, that five kip number. Yep. If you're if you're trying to sort of put that all together in your head, what would you do first? Like, would you sketch it out?
2: I would probably sketch it out. I think you know, a lot of architects are visual learners, so am I, for that matter. And so I think being able to see this sort of with the drawing that Mike had makes it clearer. I think where the forces are going.
1: Yeah, you might want to do a better job than I did.
2: But, uh, <laughs> I think it's great. <laughs> uh,
1: but yeah, but by by seeing this as a beam coming into a column, uh, it it becomes easier to understand the idea of distance and like mm-hmm. what that would mean. Plus that force couple that yep. you were talking about, the the right and left versions of the as that moment is. Uh, trying to sort of rotate around, that you get this sort of these two forces together. Yep. And it's really much, much easier, I think it is agree- as well, to if I sketch it out, I can see it. Yes. So, this is one of those ones if you're sketching it out and you've spent two and a half minutes sketching it out, you're still not really sure what to do, I say C. Just answer, <laughs> you know, C. Or uh, th- 300. You just put a number <laughs> down because you're taking too long and just make a good guess and move on. But if you can kind of sketch it out in, you know, a minute or something, mm-hmm. uh, then you can probably answer it in half a minute.
2: Yep. And the other thing is, you know, it's asking for, again, you know, I always talk about, like, oh, make sure you look at the units. Here it says a force. Force is typically in pounds or kips or such. How can I manipulate just the two numbers that they're giving me to end up as in the correct unit? And if you look at it, you know, like how Mike crossed out the inch, in the numerator and the denominator. It's just, these are sort of like little clues you can see within the problem to say, hey, what can I do Like, um, to get to the final answer?
1: Yeah, and one of the things that will happen often on these things is one number will be in pounds and one number will be in kips. Mm-hmm. And it, like, it probably won't be that hard of a question. They're just really looking to make sure that you understand that those are different uh, uh,
0: Different, uh, different, different units, units
1: yep. and that you're going to understand to judge that.
0: Sure. Guys, two questions here. Um, Christopher and Clayton had two different questions on this same uh, problem. Um, Christopher is asking about, uh, originally maybe thought that he wanted to use 7 inches instead of that 14 inches. Wondering if that, you know, um, if there's any, anything there. Also, um, Clayton's talking about the direction of the moment force and wondering if the direction of the moment force is important as you're trying to solve this one.
2: I'll, I'll go with the simpler one first. The direction of the moment doesn't matter in this, in this case, whether it's going clockwise or counterclockwise. It's just the tension-compression couple. For example, the top will, instead of being under compression, it will be under tension and vice versa. But in, the, uh, in terms of the actual quantity of number, it's just exactly the same.
1: Um, and, and thankfully, they don't actually get into, like right. they didn't give us any more detail that would force us to know which, which way it was going. If they did, then you'd have to really start making sure you had the right direction, but because we don't know that, it doesn't really matter because you're going to end up with the same five.
2: Right. And then in terms of whether it's seven inches or 14 inches, uh, Mike's handy-dandy diagram here I think shows that the top flange and the bottom flange are 14 inches apart. And when we talk about moments and beams, we almost always um, expect that exclusively the tension and compression goes into the flanges and not into the webs. We don't really count on the webs very much um, in terms of moment capacity. And so because of that, the distance of 14 between the top and bottom flange is what's important.
1: So there are plenty of other places where seven comes into play. Uh, when we're uh, understanding, when we're trying to like calculate a. Uh, I don't know, section modulus or something like that. Like that, mm-hmm. That's where you're getting how far away is the material from sure. the neutral, neutral axis. axis yep. And that's a key number. It's just that in this case, there it's really sort of, if this thing is pushing, it's pivoting off a certain point. And if it's pulling, it's pivoting off a right. certain point. Right. So in, in this case, we're using the full 14 because that's the whole rotation that's happening.
0: That's right. And Valerie asked: um, Is the top and bottom flange forces are they always equal? Uh, in this case, yes, they are. Okay, yes. so not necessarily always, but in this example, yes. Definitely. Wh-
1: wh- when would they not be equal? Because wouldn't it wouldn't it mean that there was a twist happening?
2: There would be, and so yes. So in this, you know, in this case, and almost every other case. You know, when you talk about uh, moments and tension and compression couples, the tension and compression uh, numbers are exactly the same.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things to take away from that that little quickie discussion there is, um, you know, one of the things I love about structural engineers is that they say things with such clarity (laughs) and simplicity. Is like, well, there's a five kip load here and there's a five kip load there, and they are equal to each other, and so it all magically equals out. Well, what's actually happening is people are moving furniture around and somebody's bringing the mail cart through and there's a whole, you know, today there's uh, a group of uh, kids who are showing up to, for, you know, uh, what happens in this office uh, career day. And so there's a weird load thing that's going on and it all is happening and moving and shifting all around. These numbers aren't actuality. They're a way to be able to have a reasonable guess to be able to answer reasonable questions about how deep a beam should be or how, you know, we take a, all right, it it could be in this scenario that's sort of a, it's not the worst case scenario, but it's pretty close to a worst case scenario. It's pretty safe if we assume this. What would happen if we assumed that fairly bad scenario? This is the numbers that we would get, and therefore we have to make sure that the flange can handle that and the web can handle that. Um, So we're, we're making up these numbers As a way to sort of see what a bad situation is, so that we know as long as we've kept within that, we're all okay. You know, in actuality, the actual load going in the the in that moment is probably something like one kip or something.
2: (laughs) Yep, but we, you know, but code, we have to follow that code.
1: Right. So this uh, isn't reality. No. This is a series of made up numbers that are useful in making sure that we're safe.
2: Yes. Not quite made up. But you know, <laughs> someone out there is someone out there. This is their PhD try thesis yes, trying yeah, to okay. figure out the uh, you know the probability of all these things. So they're based in some they're based research, in something. Yes, right? they're based right? in right? The research. Well, Went and actually, it is a
1: little different these days than it used to be. It used to be that you would say, "All right, we'll figure this out," and then we're going to add X percentage as a factor of safety. Right. And now these those things are a little. it's a little bit more tuned to the actual, like if you have a situation where there's not that much extra factor of safety you need to add, then that number gets a little lower so we can make these things a little bit more efficient. And in situations where we're really worried about it, we have a bigger factor of safety on it. So the this, the PhD you're talking about is somebody <laughs> has gone through and calculated all those yes. different uh, scenarios out. Yep. Yeah, so they're not, I, I don't mean they're made up numbers, <laughs> but they're they're it's it's not like if we actually went into this building and tested this, that's going to be five kips. No, it won't it, be. It's this is a useful number for designing the building. Uh, it's a way of understanding and keeping everybody smart and safe uh, without because if you really were going to figure out every possibility, it would take everybody forever and it would cost an enormous amount of money. Right. Right. So think of it that way. Think of it as these we're we're looking for easy ways to figure it out and keep it safe.
0: And I think also a good thing to keep in mind is, remember NCARB is uh, assessing you for minimum competency. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, um, just to give you some perspective, um, you know, they're probably testing you on the basics here. Um, Although there may be like a a ton of possible variations, they're probably going to give you, um, you know, a somewhat reasonable question here with a reasonable situation. They're probably not going to give you like a weird edge case Um, as they're testing you, and you're trying to assess that,
1: right? Yeah, and for example, in the first uh, question we did with the square uh, footing going uh, underneath the column, um, uh, they're not going to give you a situation where the column is uh, two foot by 15 foot or something like that. Like, it's going to be straightforward and square. They might give you a word problem that says, hey, here's a weird footing you know, what, what should you worry about or something like that. But they're not going to make it hard to do. Like, you have to be able to do the calculations. Only a very small percentage will actually be calculations. Uh, but you have to be able, if there are calculations, you have to be able to do these calculations in, you know, 45 seconds yeah. Yeah. or a minute or something like that. So you have a few uh, moments to kind of think about it and check it and, you know, do that. You're really talking a minute and a half for a typical question. So these have to be pretty pretty quick things. Uh, which is why they're they not going to go crazy in trying to trick you right. uh, in terms of the numbers. They might throw in a couple of extra numbers sure. that you have to know to disregard, mm-hmm. uh, but they're not going to go out of their way to make it hard for you.
0: Yeah, awesome. Well, hey, uh, G, Mike, thank you so much. It's been a really good session. Um, so thank you guys. Uh, thanks everybody uh, who's, who's tuned in. Thank you for your questions. They're really good. Um,
1: yeah, those yeah. are great questions. Yeah, yeah.
0: great questions. Um, so if you guys would like to attend our next ARE live broadcast, or as they say, we're going to discuss combating test anxiety, uh, which is a really interesting topic. Uh, I just posted the link in the chat box in the GoToWebinar c- control panel, so you can go down to where it says chat, and the link is there, or you can simply go to blackspectacles.com slash podcast to register. And just like today's episode, you'll have a chance to ask questions and share your, uh, your answers uh, during the broadcast. Um, to learn more about our ARE exam prep curriculum, you can go to blackspectacles.com you can try out any of the free course videos. Uh, we're actually working on uh, some sample uh, flashcards and practice exams as well, so you can kind of get a little bit of taste of those as well. Um, if you want your boss to pay for your membership, be sure to visit blackspectacles.com firms to learn more about our firm memberships for firms of any size. As I said at the top, uh, we're NCARB's first ever approved test prep provider. Um, they've approved uh, four of the four exams we've submitted, uh, so stay tuned for the announcement when the last two exams uh, or divisions will be approved And for those of you who are ready to start preparing for the ARE right now, you can use coupon code STR91118PC to get a 15% discount for the entire duration of your ARE exam prep membership. And then finally, tomorrow we'll send you an email follow-up about today's live broadcast. So please let us know what you uh, think and share any suggestions. Uh, We read every word that you write and use them to tune our next episodes. So thanks for tuning in.